Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I'm your host, Laura Hersher. Today we are going to be talking about the subject of prenatal genetic testing. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae. You know, I remember when I had my first child, which was like as horrifying as it is, 35 years ago, I was offered um, some form of prenatal genetic testing, uh, alpha fetoprotein testing, um, the very earliest versions of um, screening for Down syndrome, which I refused because mostly what I knew about it was young and I was very... uh, immune to feeling anxious in the way of the very young. And um, also, I just heard that it was wrong all the time and so on. Uh, I compare that experience to my daughter-in-law, who's pregnant at the moment, and the incredibly sophisticated testing she's been offered, a menu of tests and the incredible accuracy of what she ended up doing, which was self-refetal DNA testing, surprise to no one. So it is now, uh, in those days, uh, amnio and so on were offered to very few people, very limited. Now it's routine. The tests are so different. And in some ways, it's a radically different experience. But while I was thinking about that, I was also thinking that in the, the bottom line of it was we're offered testing for much the same few, uh, same handful of conditions. So in some ways, radically different, and in some ways, uh, much the same, and maybe that is kind of the next frontier. So I've been thinking about that a lot, and we have today the absolute perfect person to discuss this topic. This Diana Bianchi is joining us. Diana is a pediatric and neonatal specialist who has been interested in medical genetics, I think before medical genetics in this was really even a thing, right? So uh, Diana, did yeah. you have to like go back a second time to get that certification now that it existed? Uh, not really. I mean, I had I had the fellowship equivalent, uh, but I think I was in the second group of medical geneticists who took the board exams. Yeah. So the earliest of medical geneticists who's had a long and distinguished academic career studying prenatal testing and fetal therapy and uh, the lead author on a landmark study that demonstrated the clinical value of non-invasive prenatal testing back in, I think that was 2004, I'm sorry, 2014? Um, yes. And in 2016, she moved from the academy to a role as director of the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. So you've seen these issues and these problems from now many, many sides. And um, so I start off by saying I described self-refetal DNA testing as a revolution. Is that a fair description? Uh, I don't know if I'd call it a revolution. I think I'd call it a refinement because it, it, it really layers upon previous screening technologies, uh, takes advantage of the of advances that occurred around 20, uh, 2008, 2010. Um, you know, once the availability of massively parallel sequencing uh, came into smaller laboratories and um, there was already proof of principle that cell-free DNA uh, from the placenta was circulating the blood of pregnant women. A lot of things came together quite quickly. And I think that's one of the things that's notable about 
this whole field is how it went from laboratory to clinical implementation in just a few years. And they're, they're good things and bad things about Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of people went to jail because it didn't go quite quickly enough, right? Didn't that, wasn't there some, 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 the marketing got out a little ahead of the testing at one point? I, I, I'm afraid I don't know about oh, anybody yeah. going to jail. Maybe yeah, yeah, no, no, some people, in, I think it was in sequinome, if I remember this correctly, that there was the, the some claims that made, anyway. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. Yes, but it, it, it is a, a lot of yes, it is a, it, it is a, a science story and a medicine story and a business story. Absolutely. And it, and I think it wasn't a revolution, but it was a paradigm shift in the sense that um, typically almost all genetic tests that had come to market in the years previously had been developed in academic laboratories and had been validated through primarily federally funded clinical trials. And there was a slow but uh, well-accepted way that genetic and genomic tests moved into clinical application. And what was different about this was industry was involved from the beginning. So industry was responsible for marketing it and, you know, really getting it out into clinical care. So all of that happened in a, an incredibly short period of time. Like I said, the, the massively parallel sequencing equipment wasn't even widely available until 2008. Right. And the beginning clinical studies were done in 2010. And yet by 2011, by the end of 2011, you could have a clinical cell-free DNA test. There were a lot of people so, who said that happened too fast uh, and that it, it happened with too much marketing so that um, there were overselling of the capabilities of the tests in the early days. Do you think that's a reasonable way to look at it? Or did you, did you think it was brought in sort of an inappropriate way? Well, you know, as I said, this, the well-accepted model would have been to get federal funding. And Lord knows we tried. <laughs> we submitted a lot of NIH applications. And, you know, for whatever reason, they weren't funded. So industry went into the void, and there were positive and negative aspects of that. I mean, they certainly... Um, did research concurrent with implementing it into clinical care. But I think where there was probably an overselling of it was in the initial communications that suggested that, oh, this test is diagnostic and it is going to replace amniocentesis. And, and that's, that was the original messaging. And I think that that was a sort of overselling and it wasn't exactly accurate because this is a screen. It's a much better screen than what is still the existing standard of care, which would be the combined biochemical test along with the nuchal translucency measurement. And all of those tests are geared towards detecting the common autosomal aneuploidies. I did some... Uh, with a student, I did some work back, uh, I'm trying to remember what year it was, maybe in 2016, uh, where we were looking at genetic counselors' opinions on whether 
uh, self-refutal DNA, we're calling it NIPS then, should be offered as a first line to everybody or only to higher risk people. And the, the community was divided about 50-50 there. But now I think uh, I have the impression that cost aside, and that's kind of what I want to ask you about, that most people would say this is the best first line screen if you want to screen. Um, Absolutely. For, for the, for the, uh, you know, the three most common trisomies, for, at least for that. Correct. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, so I think that's true. But what percentage, do you have a sense what percentage of pregnancies now actually have that access? And what the major obstacles are? Yeah. So there's actually been a a recent publication that attempted to answer that question, um, published in the ACTA Obstetric Gynecologic in Scandinavia. So it's not on the, you know, the the reading list of most people, but they actually <clears throat> did a, almost like a map analysis of where the testing is first line in the U.S. states, um, uh, Europe, Australia, and some other parts of the world. And of course, it's offered as a first line for women who are at high risk of fetal aneuploidy. So women who are over age 35 at the time of delivery, women whose fetuses have a major sonographic abnormality, um, women who have a family history of a, of a child or a fetus with one of these aneuploidies. Um, the discussion has always been around the low-risk women or the general obstetric population. And um, in Europe, Belgium and the Netherlands are the only countries that are offering the testing as first line. I mean, honestly, cost aside, it should be first line. It's a much more accurate test. And I should mention, I have no conflict of interest. I am a fully scrubbed federal employee. Um, So I fill out all of those ethical forms. (laughs) Everything is, is completely disclosed and I have no industry relationships. But um, that being said, it is a much more accurate test. The positive predictive values are so significantly higher. I mean, for Down syndrome, they're quite high. Uh, Even for a general risk population, if you have a positive test, there's about a 90% chance that the fetus does have Down syndrome. For For a woman who is high risk, it's even higher. If you compare that to uh, serum screening, it's, it's much lower, you know, on the order of, again, depending on your age and your risk, but anywhere from 5% to maybe a little bit higher. And so the standard of care has a positive predictive value of 5% in the general population. That's not a very good screening at all. And then, I mean, those are the numbers that led me to say no. What, those many years ago, yeah. because I thought so. What that ninety-five percent chance ahead, if it's positive, I'm anxious and for nothing. Exactly, and so a lot of women uh, are made anxious. They may be counseled about having a diagnostic procedure, so then they undergo diagnostic procedures such as amniocentesis and CVS, and they're really not necessary. Now, some people will argue that you pick up other things if you do that, but the test is not really indicated in the first place. And what we found in practical application is that when you tell a woman that her cell-free DNA screen was negative 
for trisomy 13, 18, 21, most women are okay with that. And so they decide they don't need to have an invasive diagnostic procedure. So worldwide, there's been about a 70% reduction in those procedures. Which is incredible in an incredibly short period of time. Yeah. 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 Those are stunning numbers. So it has had impact. Oh, impact. I mean, I've heard... I've heard people say, I've heard this repeated, although I can't say I don't have a source for it because I went to look for a source for it. But I've heard people say that um, that uh, cell-free fetal DNA testing was the fastest growing testing in the history of medicine. Um, and I, I don't distrust that, although I can't actually prove it. Do you, do, is that a, a figure you've heard or? I yeah, I don't know about the history of medicine, but I have been quoted as saying <laughs> that it is the fastest growing test in genomic medicine. I yeah. don't know about all of medicine, but certainly genomic medicine. I mean, we've stopped counting now. There have been over 10 million tests done worldwide, you know, essentially in less than a decade. So in terms of the people who who don't have who don't have access, the the low risk population, is it simply a matter of insurance uh, coverage, or do you feel that uh, someplace doctors are not offering it? I, I think it's probably a little of both, but women find out about it anyway. So there, there are a significant number of women who are low risk, but they want to know, and it's not so much that they necessarily want to know about aneuploidy, but they know it's the most accurate way of finding out about the sex of their fetus. Yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, I, there was a Gallup poll uh, from a few years ago where they said, um, if you could, I don't know, do something like wave a wand, it was kind of a wave a wand question, if you could wave a wand and find out the sex of your fetus, then they said, you know, X percent would want a boy and X percent would want a girl and X percent wouldn't care to know. And I was like, I don't believe that X percent. Because yeah. <laughs> this make, like people really mostly want to know. Like that's a that's a big selling point. Yeah, but I think I think it would surprise your audience to know that there are actually a, you know a sizable number of state Medicaid programs that actually cover cell free DNA testing for the average risk pregnant woman. Um. So these include, I'm just looking at the map now from the paper that I mentioned. The first author is Gads Ball, and this just, this just came out in 2020. But North Dakota, Minnesota, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Florida state Medicaid programs do pay for the screening test in average risk women. You know, that's an incredibly random. That's an incredibly random set of states, really, you know. (laughs) I, I I thought you were going to roll out the usual sort of like, okay, these northeastern states in California and Oregon pay for it. And yeah, no, North Dakota, Florida, Florida. Well, again, Florida. Um, yes, Florida. <laughs> um, a, a number of the states are covering it for high risk women. So all of the northeastern states and New York, New Jersey are all covering it for high-risk women. Uh, Rhode I, I Island would have assumed everyone cover should cover it. I would have assumed everyone would cover it for high-risk women. Yeah, so this is just state Medicaid. I can't speak for the private insurers, 
but I think most of them are covering it for high risk women. Yeah. And some increasingly are covering it for low risk women. I mean, that's generally being reported in Gina. Um, so I think it's really interesting when I was doing a little research because you're coming on this show. I was excited to have you on. Uh, I learned something which I didn't know, which is that the very start of your career, you started out looking for fetal cells in maternal blood. So sort of a great arc of continuity within your career. Um, uh, I Decades before uh, the, the cell-free fetal DNA testing was a reality. And um, so... I know it's different to look for cells than to look for free floating, but the idea that you would get information from the maternal bloodstream on fetal DNA, um, looking back to the 1970s, what did you expect that information to get, to, to garner? And, and, and have your goals on that shifted? Like, has your thoughts on, on the value of that piece of information changed, evolved over time? Remain the same? Well, there's a lot packed into that question. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, Laura, you're making me feel very old. Okay, I'm not that old. Oh, sorry. I just started early. And okay. uh, no, just kidding. Um, my interest in genetics really started as a high school student. I was fortunate to go to Hunter College High School in Manhattan. And we had to do a senior thesis in high school. And I went to Roosevelt Hospital to do a project on cytogenetics. And I just, I loved chromosomes. Can I just interrupt uh, I, you to say I, that going to Hunter College High School in, in Manhattan is a very, uh, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a quite a mark in, in this. You wouldn't know it if you're not from the city, but it's very hard to do, a very amazing place to go to school and explains why someone will be doing genetics work in high school. So, okay, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but. Well, thank you. Um, it was all female at the time. And for example, Chief Justice Elena Kagan was a couple of years behind me, but now people know it because Lin-Manuel Miranda went there and uh, Chris Hayes, if you watch MSNBC. So they're far more famous than I am. But anyway. In, in um, their world. In their world. <laughs> yeah. I was fascinated with chromosomes. And I've subsequently learned that, you know, visual pattern matching is, is a skill that I have and probably directed me towards medical genetics and syndrome diagnosis as well. Um, when I went to medical school, I was looking for a research project. Stanford University School of Medicine encouraged research and, in fact, left time in the curriculum for research. And so I went to the geneticists and said, look, I, you know, I know how to do karyotypes. I want to continue in this. And they directed me to professors Len and Lenore Hertzenberg. And they told me the story that they had a son, Michael, who had, has, I mean, still alive, Down syndrome. And um, they had just developed the fluorescence-activated self-sorter. And they wanted me to figure out a way to isolate fetal cells from the blood of pregnant women using the fax machine. Um, and I said, okay, sure. You know, I wasn't daunted by it. 
not realizing how difficult it would be. But um, it was always tied to a person, even though I didn't meet Michael at the time. I did meet him um, many years later. But um, they were very passionate about the fact that they they wished that they had known. But when Michael was born, it was in 1960, I believe, before karyotypes were even used to confirm a genetic diagnosis. Now, the second part of your question was, you know, how has your thinking evolved? So, you know, when I joined that laboratory, I was really thinking about this from a purely biological and technical perspective, not necessarily from a human or an ethical perspective. And certainly in the subsequent years, having cared for many people with Down syndrome, and now particularly at NIH, I co-chair the um, steering committee for the INCLUDE project, which is a uh, $60 million initiative. Um, and the INCLUDE project, is it's an acronym for investigating co-occurring conditions across the lifespan to understand Down syndrome. Um, so it, it's really it's really been also an evolution. You could say that the testing, the screening itself is an evolution, but my personal experiences have evolved as well. But I also have to say that with my pediatric training, I've always been interested in fetal medicine from the very beginning. And that's why I'm also trained in neonatology, which is the closest I could get to fetal medicine and still be a pediatrician. So part of our laboratory, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have a research laboratory as well as directing an institute. Part of our laboratory is focused on developing novel treatments um, to improve neurocognition in Down syndrome. And of course, there are a lot of ethical implications to that as well. But we've been thinking about that, and I've and actually that, worked that with in, some. Is that in the neonatal state or in in in, in fetal? Th- these are. Th- at what point would the interventions that you're looking at be useful? Yeah, it would it would be as early as possible. So um, the vision would be that a woman would have a screening test, would find out that her fetus has Down syndrome, and then she would be offered the opportunity to take a medication that would be safe for her, that would cross the placenta and the blood-brain barrier, and reduce oxidative stress and neuroinflammation that we know is occurring in the developing brain of fetuses with Down syndrome. And we just published a paper, uh, it's in the November issue of the American Journal of Human Genetics, which is um, documenting our very first study, a preclinical study, but it, it took five years to look at the effects of apigenin on uh, human cells from people with Down syndrome, as well as um, the TS1CJE mouse model of Down syndrome. And we found that it had many beneficial effects and really no ill effects. Um, so this was in, uh, I'm sorry if I didn't get, this isn't entirely in the mouse model. This is also in humans that it had no, you had, did you it's do safety It's in human test? cells as in, well. In human cells, I see. Um, yeah. And so on a gut level, 
do you think that will change the debate? Like the the it will change who currently chooses to continue a pregnancy with Down syndrome and who doesn't, or that it's more that that will remain a split, and and perhaps people that are continuing a pregnancy will be interested in this. Well, I can't speak for you know, all of the different people out there who've had different life experiences and make different choices. But, you know, for our group, it's, it's really about adding another option. And we would never want to do anything to harm a baby who is going to be born with Down syndrome. But if we could uh, reduce some of the oxidative stress or reduce inflammation and allow uh, neurons to migrate to where they're supposed to be going and allow the cells to develop at the proper rate, if that results in more typical neurodevelopment, then we, we would hope that we're helping some people. Mm-hmm. Um, we're actually, you know, we've, we've, I've worked with some ethicists in the Netherlands uh, who actually did a survey in the Netherlands to see whether families would be interested in this. And what was so fascinating was there was a split. Uh, Women and their partners were interested in fetal therapy before their child was born and before their child had a personality, but but they would not be interested after the child was born and they knew their child and their child had a personality. So I thought that was, it really creates an opportunity that doesn't currently exist for treatment. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's actually really fascinating in terms of th- these are very complicated and not black and white issues of uh uh what is addressing the symptom of a disease because there is some morbidity associated with down syndrome. There is some like you wouldn't say, "Oh, having a hole in your heart is just a another part of the spectrum of normal associated with down syndrome, so that's fine. You would obviously fix it." But in in terms of someone's cognitive and psychological and personality development, you know, what do you envision as sort of expanding your sense of what's the spectrum of normal human, right? Versus what do you describe as a medical problem? Gets really complicated. Yeah, exactly. But really, our goal is to... Um, you know, we obviously the appearance of someone with Down syndrome wouldn't change, but if we could um, increase IQ by 10 to 20 points, that means that there is a significant improvement in independent life skills. And that's really our initial focus. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's fascinating. This, this discussion about Down syndrome brings me back to some of my initial points in the introduction, which is that we're still talking about Down syndrome uh, when we talk about prenatal screening. And one of the things about cell-free fetal DNA testing that is different than it being a a refinement of existing techniques is there has been the implication from the get-go that there was the potential to expand it. Um, that it could conceivably be used for testing for a wider variety of targets. Um, Do you think that's where we're headed? Do you think that's 
possible and what time frame? What do you what do you think about that? Well, it's already happened. So, you know, this this interest and this is where it's so fascinating because it's where industry intersects with the science and the clinical utility. So, you know, again, back 2011, 2012, 2013, some major companies were competing with each other and each one was pushing out, you know, a much more expanded menu. So first it was sex chromosome aneuploidies. I mean, we, we never screened for sex chromosome aneuploidies before. Um, you know, you can see certain abnormalities on ultrasound if a female fetus has Turner syndrome, but not 100% of the time. And most male fetuses with Klinefelter syndrome look absolutely perfect. You don't see anything on ultrasound. You don't even see anything when they're born. So there's already a debate there about whether we should be identifying uh, fetuses or babies at birth with sex chromosome aneuploidies. And there's a counter argument that, yes, there's some treatment available and that this ultimately will help those children. Um, but then there was the whole debate about the copy number variants and, you know, deletions and what is the clinical utility of those. So, for example, the George syndrome. Um, I mean, the George syndrome is reasonably common, but there have been some other ones that were selected because just because they're associated with large deletions. But they're not exactly public health problems. They're extremely rare. Um, so, you know, there's still debate even now, five, six, seven years after these tests were introduced, whether they have clinical utility or not. And then there are the, um, the rats, the rare autosomal trisomies. So it turns out that with the whole genome sequencing approach, um, the chromosomes are all sequence. So you know if you have excess of any chromosome or deficiencies in any chromosome, but the algorithms in some of the labs are, are such that it essentially blocks out information that is not needed for that particular test. Um, but it turns out that the algorithms then also uh, are somewhat led astray if a non-target chromosome, let's just say chromosome eight, is being used as a reference chromosome for another chromosome. And this can lead to uh, false positive results and non-reportable results, which hopefully we'll get to in a minute. So there's been uh, discussion, and I am guilty of part of that discussion, as to whether you should release all results to make it much more transparent. So if there is trisomy eight, uh, it should be reported, but in certain iterations of the test, chromosome eight uh, results are blocked. So you don't see anything, even if there is an abnormality on chromosome eight. Now, why is this important? It could indicate confined placental mosaicism, but in other cases, it might, it might presage um, a miscarriage. So in a study that we published, um, in science and translational medicine in 2017, we showed that if 
there was evidence of trisomy 15, there was an extremely high chance that the pregnancy was going to miscarry. So if you have that information, you know, is it more ethical to not give that information to the family or is it more ethical to say, you know, we do see this result and therefore, you know, we, we are concerned that your pregnancy is at an extremely high risk of miscarriage. I'm going to flip that question back at you because I would like to know your answer. (laughs) Which do you think is more ethical? (laughs) Don't ask me. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I would vote on the the side of giving that information because I think when the woman miscarries, if she doesn't have an answer, um, then she's going to ask herself a lot of questions probably for the rest of her life. You know, was it that glass of wine that I had or, you know, I was cleaning my apartment using some toxic chemical is that why I miscarried when all along we knew that it was trisomy 15. But it was it's it's when they get these tests it's a a high likelihood or a certainty? Um, You mean the result how accurate is the result? Yeah yeah because I'm thinking but that makes sense that if you could tell somebody unfortunately this is absolutely going to end in a miscarriage but if you're telling somebody okay you have like a 97 percent chance that this pregnancy is going to end in a miscarriage um the downside would then be so for the one that's not yeah yeah right right um no it you know we still have limited information i think that in this particular study we had maybe um it was around 15 cases of trisomy 15 and 14 of the 15 miscarried. Mm-hmm. I would never say it's a hundred percent. I never say that to anybody in my prenatal counseling. There's a hundred percent chance this baby's going to miscarry. Like a doctor. I would just say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would say that it's, you know, this is a high risk pregnancy and you know, you now need to be followed more closely. Yeah. My, um, my, um, uh... My family is my other uh, generation of my family in front of me is all doctors, and I don't. They wouldn't tell me there's a hundred percent chance of turkey at Thanksgiving like that. It's just <laughs> it's not going to happen. And so, um, yeah, so there's a variant of this question which I, I know that sometimes you do these prenatal screens and you get very unusual sets of results that suggest. Uh, a maternal malignancy. And there's been a lot of discussion around the kind of issues you're bringing up. It's sort of like, well, should we give that information back? Because it seems like something the woman would really need to know. But the tests aren't validated in that regard, right? That is correct. So that puts the counselor or the clinician in the lab in a very awkward place, right? Um now, I assume that the day will come where there will be validated tests and we can have a real answer. But right now, what would you suggest doing with those results? Well, um, your tax dollars are going to good use because um, at the NIH Clinical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, which is the largest research hospital in the world, we have a study called the Identify Study, which is geared at exactly that. Um, There is 
you know, there's no prospective evidence to tell us whether women who have these unusual results with non-invasive prenatal testing um, have cancer or not. So some counselors will bring it up, some won't. Uh, at least genetic counselors are, are highly informed on the, on the subject, but most primary OBs are not. The, the difficulty is that you can't do the study without some sort of major research support because uh, insurers are not going to pay for the workup of a woman who might have cancer. So with the identified study, the goal is to bring women in to the clinical center for like a day and a half of outpatient testing in which they will get uh, a number of blood tests, a whole body MRI. Uh, we, we have a, a bioethicist uh, talking to these women and doing a study to see um, how this potential knowledge is affecting them. And we're trying, the goal of the study is to generate evidence that will then inform clinicians and insurers how to manage these women. You're absolutely right. The test is not designed to detect malignancy, but it's very clear if you're used to looking at these patterns of genome-wide dysregulation, there's a, a very specific pattern that you see when there's either a tumor or a fibroid um, throwing off uh, DNA from apoptotic and necrotic cells, and those cell-free DNA fragments are in the, the circulation of the pregnant woman, and so they are being added to the placental DNA fragments, and that's what throws off the test. I um, so This year, you have the first of the cell-free DNA tests that are screens for uh, recurrence or used for cancer diagnostics. And I'm just waiting till they do enough of them. I figure one of these days they're going to start being like, oh, we did this screen for cancer and found out someone's pregnant. Should we tell them? Well, in this case, it's it's the reverse. So these yeah, women are coming in pregnant. And, no, no, and, I know. Um, I just think it's I just think it's like, well, yeah, why can't it someday? Yeah. Someday it'll be the other thing. They'll be like, uh-oh. Right. <laughs> we can right. also see that. But um, I, I would say, you know, for your audience, um, um, if they do have cases of unusual or non-reportable non NIPT results, that they are very welcome to contact Amy Turif, T-U-R-R-I-F, and that's amy.turif at nih.gov. She's a genetic counselor, and she's also the clinical coordinator for the study, and she would be more than happy uh, to talk with anyone about the study. We do pay for transportation for anyone within the United States to come to Bethesda. I realize we're in the middle okay, of a so pandemic, but... This, we, is, this is a good, this is a good <laughs> PSA. This is for anyone with uh, unusual... Uh, self-free fetal DNA testing results that look like a malignancy. I mean, well, I'm happy to put up um, the contact information on the website so that it's out there. Right. Yeah. Well, yes. Um, and, it, you know, obviously it's an IRB-approved study. It's on clinicaltrials.gov, but I don't think the clinical trial site is really a good description of what, what the study is doing. Uh, it's best to contact Amy 
And the other interesting thing is um, we would prefer to study women while they're pregnant, but we can study them up to two years after they have delivered. And we're looking for women who have these unusual NIPT results. They do not have to have uh, an amniocentesis or a CVS, but the the baby would have to, we would have to know that the baby is normal karyotypically. Uh, so we would need a cord blood karyotype as well. So we're looking, you know, we're making, we want to make sure that the fetus or the baby is normal and that actually the problem is in the mother. And then we can do the workup from there. And there's no charge for anything. The entire workup, as I said, is paid for by our tax dollars. And when they get these results back, are you finding that that most of the labs report them out this way? Are they are they being explained this way to the clinical counselor, or are sometimes the labs just sending this back as unreportable? So there is tremendous variation in how these results are reported. As we found now that we're getting reports from all over the country. And uh, we even have one international participant. Uh, some labs say nothing, even if they see something unusual, they just say non-reportable results. Other labs actually include the possibility to consider maternal malignancy. And um, we don't, you know, although we have reached out to the major commercial laboratories offering this testing, we don't always hear about these cases from the labs, we mainly hear about them from the genetic counselors. Although there are genetic counselors at the labs now very often, so that's... Yes, there are. So so that's also a part of the audience, and maybe that will will affect some of their decision-making, knowing that there is this program available, something they can offer. Uh, well, that's, that's fascinating. Any other PSAs, Diana, while we're at it? Like, let me, my mic is your mic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we're, this one isn't quite ready to go. The Identify study, uh, just started, um, around Christmas and of course, then the pandemic occurred and the clinical center was shut down. So we were delayed a few months, but now we're up and running full time. So we have had women travel from, as far away as the West Coast. Uh, but another study that I think is kind of along the same lines, because you might figure out that now I'm really interested in these secondary genomic findings in the mother. Um, so the question is, when you see sex chromosome aneuploidies, uh, particularly Turner syndrome, is it that the mother has mosaic Turner syndrome or is it that the baby has Turner syndrome? So once we ruled out that the baby does not have Turner syndrome, why are we getting abnormalities in the X chromosome signal with cell-free DNA testing? So we're very interested in studying these women who are clearly fertile because they're coming to attention because they're pregnant and they're having cell-free DNA testing. Uh, But what are the implications if they are subsequently shown to have low-grade mosaicism for Turner syndrome? Should they be followed like adult women with Turner syndrome? You know, do they need to have thyroid tests? Should they have an echocardiogram? Uh, Should they be treated for hypercholesterolemia? So 
uh, again, I think it comes under the umbrella of secondary genomic findings and really raises the question as to, you know, in the pretest counseling for the fetus, should something consistently be said about the test might find something in you, the pregnant woman? Well, I think we can um, pretty clearly see that having a genomicist has ha- at the head has had an effect on the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. I'm, I'm getting that message, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I also want to say that the Identify study is a partnership. So my lab is in the Human Genome Institute, um, but we also partner with the Women's Malignancy Branch at the National Cancer Institute. So once a month, we go over all of our cases, and it's, it's just terrific to have an oncologist right there. And the oncologists thought, they frankly thought we were crazy at the beginning. They, they just couldn't understand what it was <laughs> we were trying to do. And then, you know, once we, I mean, we have had, a number of cases now that are very clearly malignancies. And so once they they started seeing those MRIs, they were like, wow, we're believers. You know, we're saving (laughs) lives. Wait till they they start finding pregnant women with their tests. Just wait. Then then they'll understand. (laughs) (laughs) Then they'll be like, ah, I get this now. Um, Well, this is fascinating. Personally, my tax dollars, if I could send them all to NIH, I'd be a happy, happy taxpayer. Um, really amazing stuff that's going on and amazing that you are able to persevere through this horrendous year and all of the added challenges for everybody. Um, so kudos to that. And we are um, well, running you. out of time. and It's been such a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you coming here to to join me for it today. Well, Laura, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a great pleasure to speak with you, and I hope that we can connect in person when the pandemic is over. Wouldn't that be nice <laughs> to meet again in person? I would enjoy that very much. Uh, thank you. Thank you to the rest of the audience. Please go to the website. Uh, follow me. Follow me on Twitter, at Laura Hersher. And take care, everybody. Uh, Crazy times. Uh, Be safe out there. Stay safe. Thank you. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae.